The sound you're hearing is the sound of habitat creation, of crucial water retention to take the edge off mega droughts. It's the sound of fire breaks and fire refugia being born. This sound, if multiplied by millions throughout the West, is the sound of ecological salvation through restoration of watersheds on a really big scale. Join me today as I talk to an expert on beavers and the plan to reverse the damage done by their removal from the landscape, as well as what we can look forward to if we rewater the West by flooding it with beavers. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Ben Goldfarb is an award-winning environmental writer whose journalism has appeared in Mother Jones, Science, The Guardian, Orion, High Country News, and many other publications. His fiction has appeared in the Bellevue Literary Review, Motherboard, and Hopper. He has spoken about environmental storytelling at venues including Stanford and Yale Universities, the American Fisheries Society, and the North American Congress for Conservation Biology. And today we're talking about his book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the Rewilding Earth podcast today. Thanks a lot for having me, Jack. I'm a fan, and I know you're probably sick of hearing it by now because the book came out in 2018, but I love your book, and I appreciate the humor. Oh, my, my pleasure. And you know, they're, they're inherently comedic. You know, they're, the, they're these big, fat, smelly rodents. You know, you, you got to embrace the comedy of beavers, I think. It feels like beavers would have a good sense of humor. Not, not like those stuffy otters, you know. I, I think otters are pretty uptight. But <laughs> beavers, are, beavers, beavers can crack a joke. Well, I know a lot of our listeners have already read your book by now. Um, others will be picking it up for sure. And I wanted to probably go past a couple of the things. We have some uh, listeners who are beaver adjacent, beaver aware, uh, beaver lovers, beaver believers, I think you call them, uh, and then some newbies. So we want to kind of thread that needle today. And one topic that's been coming up lately on the last few podcasts is landscape amnesia. Even conservationists forget how radically changed the landscape is in North America. You were talking about trout streams. The way that we see trout streams now, like on a magazine cover, are uh, just straight and rocky bottom, clear water. Then you described how they were when beavers were around, radically different and would not show up on a Field and Stream magazine cover, probably. (laughs) And so I kind of wanted to get your take on what either the past or the future could look like if we were to, um, to coin a popular current phrase, flood the West, flood North America with beavers again. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, a great question. I mean, I think it's, I think it's hard for us to understand, as you say, how, you know, green and blue and lush and wet, you know, the Western United States especially used to be, you know, they're just amazing accounts of uh, trappers and explorers, you know, crossing 
places like southeastern Wyoming, you know, which is today basically desert and finding these, you know, lush marshes full of waterfowl. And, you know, so much of that was, of course, due to due to beavers, you know, and we when we when we killed, you know, several hundred million beavers, uh, you know, in the in the uh, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, you know, we profoundly changed the land in, in ways that we don't fully understand today. You know, it's one thing that I think about often is that, you know, when you've got a kind of a healthy beaver rich stream, of course, all of those beaver dams are acting like speed bumps, right? Slowing the water down and spreading the water out across the floodplain. And when you lose all of those beaver built speed bumps, you know, there's nothing checking the velocity of water and you get this really dramatic and kind of catastrophic erosion or incision. And that stream gets, you know, locked within its banks uh, and loses that floodplain connectivity and no longer soaks into the ground and recharges the aquifer, right? So there are, you know, all of these, these beaver created hydrological and geomorphological connections, you know, when you, when you lose that, I mean, so many of our lush wet meadows and wetlands and floodplains that beavers had pushed streams onto, lost that stream connection and, you know, basically desiccated, you know, and I, I think we're not really accustomed to thinking about the fur trade in the same terms as, you know, the deforestation of New England or the busting of the Midwestern prairie or, you know, gold mining in the Sierra Nevada uh, as being this kind of seminal ecological catastrophe. But, you know, there's no question that it, uh, it, it dried out North America uh, in a, a huge way and that, you know, fur trading was one of the, the most destructive and earliest things that uh, white, white people did in North America. What would be happening right now during this mega drought, and especially in the West, Southwest, if beavers were back in the historic population numbers, what, do you, what would the landscape be like full of beavers and most importantly, full of dams? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I and mean, I think that the, you know, the drought is really, you know, the, I mean, the drought's about snowpack, right? That's our, that's our issue is that we're, you know, we're losing our snowpack in the, in the West, you know, and, and precipitation. Yes, we're losing precipitation in general, but we're especially losing snow, right? And, and snow is so important, of course, because it gradually melts uh, and it keeps, you know, keeps our streams hydrated deep into the summer. Uh, you know, it's kind of this time release trickle, right? Um, and, you know, when it, when precipitation falls as rain instead of snow, it just, you know, runs off the landscape right away and we lose that, that gradual melt that's so important uh, when it comes to, you know, keeping water in streams. So that's what, that's what beavers do, right? They're, you know, they're, if we're losing our snowpack, well, they're another form of water storage up in the high country, you know, building their dams, creating their ponds, uh, you know, soaking the floodplains, creating that floodplain sponge that gradually, you know, gives water back to the stream um, in the form of groundwater and surface water exchange. So, you know, yes, we'd still be, you know, we, we'd still be losing snow, but we'd, we'd have a way of keeping that water on the landscape longer. And a lot of our seasonal streams, I think, would be perennial, right? That's one of the really important things that beavers do is by keeping water on the landscape longer, they ensure that there's still water in the stream, you know, come August and September. And I think that there are, you know, thousands and thousands of stream miles really all over the, all, all over the American West that were historically perennial streams that flowed year round that have become seasonal streams uh, that go dry uh, in the, you know, the summer and early fall. And if we had more beavers on the landscape, you know, we'd have a way of keeping water 
in those streams year round. So I think that, you know, that again, thousands of stream miles that were historically perennial have become seasonal and we need beavers to return that year round flow. As you hear about all of the other benefits that beavers provide themselves and wildlife and then humans, it would be great if it went in that order. Uh, <laughs> but that one is really quite a big deal because you're talking about all the time climate change now. And nobody who talks about climate change talks about beavers. Very few people. I know you do. But very, very, I mean, in the news, you just don't see that, you know, human caused, you hear human caused and everybody immediately goes to fossil fuels, which, I mean, they should, they should, but they should also talk about this. Yeah, you're, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, fortunately, I think that beavers are becoming more mainstream recently. And, you know, one of the, one of the beaver climate connections uh, that's, that's really helped them achieve, you know, wider popularity uh, is the, the beaver wildfire connection, right? And that's something that, you know, the people in the beaver community always kind of, I think, intuitively or anecdotally understood that, hey, these are animals that are, you know, spreading water out in the landscape, they're irrigating plants, right? A, a, you know, a, a lush green riparian corridor is less likely to go up in flames than kind of a dry, brown, crispy, uh, you know, swath of vegetation. Um, you know, beavers, there are, you know, there's, there are definitely lots of anecdotal observations of beavers, you know, creating fire breaks on the landscape, you know, fire burns down to a wetland and then stops in its tracks. But, you know, we didn't really have that documented in the peer-reviewed uh, literature until uh, a couple of years ago when uh, a scientist named Emily Fairfax uh, published a great paper um, about beavers creating fire breaks and fire refugia. Uh, she actually suggested that, you know, beavers are such good firefighters that the Forest Service should change its mascot from Smokey the Bear to Smokey the Beaver. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that achieved a lot of uh, you know, a lot of uptake, I think, in the in the popular in the popular culture, um, and uh, you know, because of course we've all you know we've all experienced wildfire in the last few years. You know, we, we're all accustomed to uh, you know smoky summers now, um, and uh, you know, and, and so that that fire connection, I think, really helped beavers, uh, you know, kind of go go mainstream. So, I think placing a little subliminal in everyone's head just to the next time you smell that smoke, you see that smoke, think of the absence of beavers. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, Emily's talked about the idea of, of uh, you know, even fireproofing communities with beavers, you know, could you have this kind of beaver created wetland uh, or riparian buffer, you know, that helps protect, uh, you know, communities in California and other states from, from wildfire. You know, there's, there's a, a kind of a public safety benefit there too, potentially. Why is it impossible for me not to picture a beaver with a clipboard and a hard hat? Well, they're, they're engineers, man. They're, you know, a, a little, a little, <laughs> fluorescent, a little fluorescent vest, you know, I, I, I can, I can see it. When people say that they're a keystone species or an umbrella species, what do you think about when you think about the other species that fall under the purview and protection of beavers in a healthy environment? Yeah, I mean, it's practically impossible, you know, not to name a species that uh, doesn't benefit from beavers at right. some point, you know, it's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, of course, amphibians, you know, love to breed in beaver ponds, you know, they're fantastic rearing grounds for juvenile salmonids, trout and salmon, you know, other, uh, other aquatic uh, mammals, you know, muskrat, mink, otter, moose, 
you know, see a million waterfowl and uh, wading birds around beaver complexes. I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, but it's like, it's funny. There, there are all of these, you know, kind of great classic scientifically proven um, connections. Uh, but, you know, the, but like every time you go to a beaver, a beaver complex, there's something cool and new and, and weird to observe. You know, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple uh, a couple of examples of that. So, so first, a, a few years ago, I went to I went to Voyagers National Park in Minnesota, which is just like this incredible beaver mecca. Um, and there, some of the, some of the Park Service biologists took me to this spot where you know beavers have built this giant pond with a, a big lodge in the middle. And then the beavers had left the area for whatever reason, as beavers do. You know, maybe they'd gotten predated or or they just moved on or something. And the dam broke down. The whole pond drained and, and the lodge was just left sitting, you know, right in the middle of this big kind of wet meadow. Uh, and a pack of wolves actually moved into the lodge and raised their their pups in this huh. old beaver lodge. So that's, you know, beavers creating habitat for their direct predator. I think that's, you know, that's pretty amazing. And then another another cool one, uh, just uh, a couple of months ago, I was, I was in, in Utah um, hanging out with Joe Wheaton, who's a, a great beaverologist at uh, Utah State, and he took me to uh, this you know this this really cool beaver complex, um, and we were you know we we're walking around and we saw we saw a sandhill crane walking along the top of the of the the, the beaver dam. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I've never, you know, I've never seen a sandhill um, at a, a beaver complex before. So, you know, I took I took some pictures, uh, and then I, I posted the pictures on Twitter, and uh, a person replied and said, "Hey, zoom in, you know, right at that sandhill crane's feet." So I zoomed in, and there were two eggs that she had she'd actually nested on top of the the crest of the beaver dam, um, which is incredible, right? So that's you know that's there's that's never been you know, observed in the, in the literature, but, you know, anecdotally, it was just this incredible uh, experience of, you know, seeing, uh, seeing beavers creating this amazing little nesting island, essentially, for, uh, for, for sandhill cranes. So, you know, again, there's, there's, there's just always some kind of cool, surprising, novel, interesting biological connection to observe every time you're around these animals. So now that you're this pro, in all things beavers, I want to know what it's like to be you now. Like, what are the things you're thinking about? You mentioned that there's this groundswell that uh, your book and other things have definitely helped to grow people's knowledge and then advocacy for beavers and beaver reintroduction. How is all that going now? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning really excited to think about and work and, and, and advocate for beavers? You know, I think that one of the cool things about beavers is just what a what an urban species they are, right? They're, you know, like, I don't think we, we don't really think about beavers in the same way that we think about, you know, coyotes or raccoons, you know, these animals that can kind of live in our, in our midst, but they really can, you know, they, they can live anywhere that we tolerate them. I mean, there are, you know, there are more beavers in Seattle than there are in Yellowstone National Park, you know, they're, they're, they're just very hardy animals that do well around people when we give them a chance to, to live, you know, and they're just, I mean, they're just so many incredible case studies of beavers, you know, filtering out stormwater pollution in urban areas or, uh, you know, or creating these wonderful little 
pockets of wetland habitat, um, you know, next to, uh, you know, I think there's a, a famous uh, colony of beavers that, you know, is making a living in a, a Walmart parking lot in, in Logan, Utah. Uh, and there's this wonderful little yeah, pocket of wildness in a, you know, in a, an otherwise kind of desolate, you know, strip mall uh, hell's, hellscape. <laughs> um, you know, and it, of course, there's the, the famous story of, uh, of Jose, the beaver who moved into the Bronx River, uh, you know, about about 15 years ago and became mm -hmm. this kind of emblem of, of rewilding in a very urban place, you know. So I, I think that's, to me, that's really exciting, you know, is, I mean, nature is all around us, right? You don't necessarily have to go to a national park to experience something amazing and wild. And, you know, beavers are one of the one of the agents of restoration and rewilding that's creating wildness in, in some really urban places. Um, and, you know, providing these wonderful ecological services in, in urban areas too, you know, again, filtering, filtering our water, protecting us from, uh, from wildfires, uh, you know, promoting the, the fish that we love to catch, you know, uh, they're these, yeah, these wonderful little provisioners of, uh, of ecosystem services. So I'm, you know, excited by, beavers in, in urban places and also thinking about how we can coexist with them. You know, it's, I mean, there are just so many wonderful, great examples um, all over the country, you know, in places like Martinez, California, uh, where, you know, the, uh, the local government officials wanted to kill the beavers in the downtown creek and, you know, citizens uh, organized to, to save them, you know, and there are lots of good examples of that now, um, you know, communities kind of coming together around these animals. Uh, to promote urban wildness. So that's that's really exciting to me. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, what kinds of projects are you seeing that are kind of exciting out there right now? You know, in terms as attitudes change, places where you're seeing them uh, get a new foothold, uh, what kinds of stories do you have to tell about that? Yeah, there, you know, I mean, there are some, there are some really cool stories out there. I was just, you know, I, I mentioned that I was, at, I was in Utah recently and, um, you know, then went up to Idaho um, and I was hanging out with, with Joe Whedon, this Utah state beaverologist, and then this, this rancher named Jay Wild. Uh, and, you know, and, I mean, to me, Jay is just one of the most ex inspiring, exciting stories in all of beaverdom you know he's a yeah he's kind of this this old school idaho rancher um and uh you know he had this kind of seasonal stream that uh you know used to used to provide water to his homestead and you know he kind of thought hey why did you know why is this stream drying up oh yeah it used to have beavers and uh you know he he uh you know reintroduced some beavers to his his land and um you know, also, you know, Joe and the Utah State guys built some beaver dam analogs, you know, kind of these human built beaver dams that, you know, give the animals a leg up and kind of help them, you know, convince them to stay in the area like, hey, there's some dams here already. This is, a, you know, probably a good place to live. Um, so, you know, so I, so I had visited Jay for the first time in 2017. And, I, you know, I forget how many, how many dams the beavers had built, you know, maybe like a, you know, a 
10 or 20 or something like that. And it was like, wow, it's pretty cool. You know, these, these beavers are doing pretty well. They, you know, they stuck around, they're building a little bit. Um, so, you know, I was curious to come back five years later uh, and see what, what the beavers were up to. So I went back to Jay's place and it was just mind blowing. I mean, I mean, you know, they had, the beavers had built more than 200 dams in the last five years. Wow. And, they were, and, they'd, and they'd built in places that you just wouldn't believe, you know, like that, I think that we, you know, we sort of have this idea of a good beaver stream being this, you know, kind of gentle, low gradient, you know, meandering stream. But these beavers were building in these really steep, rocky, you know, kind of, um, yeah, kind of hardcore environments, um, you know, in, in, in streams with, you know, gradients of, you know, 12 or 15%, you know, streams that you wouldn't consider great beaver habitat. And they were just kind of stair-stepping them, you know, creating these, these beautiful little terraces and uh, they were just going crazy, you know? So it, that was just incredible to see. And, and, you know, and Jay was seeing, I mean, Jay's seen about two extra months of water in his stream, uh, you know, thanks to those, thanks to those beavers, you know, just keeping water on the landscape, slowing the flow, uh, you know, hydrating those, uh, you know, that, that, that groundwater table. Um, so that was just incredible to see that, you know, Hey, I mean, you, you know, Jay started with, you know, I think, I don't know, five to 10 beavers and, uh, you know, six or seven years later, he's got 200 dams and two more months of water in his stream. I think that's a, a pretty incredible, inspiring story. And it's just getting started too. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, these beavers are still, you know, spreading up the drainage, you know, finding new, new areas to colonize, reproducing, spreading through the watershed, uh, you know, so it, I'm, I'm excited to, you know, go back in another five years and see what that place looks like. Well, that story begs the question, how do you get your hands on some beavers? If you're a land trust or a private land owner who's just heard that and they want to do that, I mean, you can't just pop on down to a beaver store, right? I mean, how do people take part in or find out more about projects that they can uh, use on their land to do the same thing? Yeah, it's a good good question. I mean, the, one of the challenges is that uh, every state has different regulations around beaver beaver relocation, right? There are some states like Washington uh, that you know make it uh, make it pretty easy, and then others that uh, you know, like a lot of northeastern states that you know it's basically impossible. So you know, you, I mean, you you definitely want to start with your uh, you know your local whatever your state fish and game agency is, and you know figure out what the regulations are, and um, you know, and then see who's you know who's doing this work. I mean, sometimes it's the state agency that itself that's uh, you know, relocating beavers. Sometimes it's nonprofits uh, who are doing that work. You know, sometimes it's it's native tribes in some areas are, are getting really into beaver beaver restoration, which is you know incredibly exciting. Um, so, yeah, just uh, you know, figure out uh, you know your kind of your local your local situation, and then go from there. And you know, most of the beavers that um, get relocated are. are quote unquote nuisance beavers. You know, I don't love mm. that term because really, you know, we humans are the, the nuisance more often than not. But, uh, you know, beavers that are, are damming in irrigation ditches or road culverts or cutting down, you know, people's apple trees or, or what have you, you know, beavers that are kind of messing around on private property and, uh, you know, the landowner wants them gone and, and you know, relocation can be, uh, you know, kind of a way of giving them uh, a new lease on life and, and also repopulating some of these, uh, these areas that you know, historically had beavers and, and don't anymore. Now I have a picture in my mind in the Northeast of uh, a guy with a trench coat and he opens it up and has some beavers in the pockets there. And he's like, Hey buddy, you need a beaver. <laughs> yeah. That's so. how, that's how beavers got back to the Bronx. You know, that's, that's the, <laughs> it was one of those black market beaver dealers. 
<laughs> hey, you have a, a project you're working on, or you've put the finishing touches on, you're just waiting for your publisher. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the the uh, the next book that um, um, yeah, as you said, nearly done with it. I, I hope will be out um, in fall of 2023. Uh, is about uh, it's about roads and nature, the science of road ecology, which is basically you know how roads influence the natural world and uh, you know what we what we can do about that. You know everything from you know building wildlife overpasses and underpasses on major highways to, uh, you know, decommissioning or, you know, obliterating some of the, uh, the historic logging roads that are, you know, causing big erosion and sedimentation problems in national forests. So, you know, thinking about roads from at every scale and, uh, you know, in every type of landscape. And, you know, I think that that's, um, you know, I think, I think that shares some DNA with the, the, uh, the beaver book, you know, I mean, as, as you alluded to earlier, Jack, you know, the beaver book is really about identifying the ways in which our landscapes have changed that we don't fully understand, you know, how did fur trapping transform the land and, and how can, uh, you know, restoring beavers kind of heal it or begin to heal it. And, you know, I think by the same token, uh, roads are this, this historic, environmental impact that we often overlook, right? There's such a, a, you know, a kind of a, a ubiquitous fundamental part of our lives, you know, that we, we just, you know, we use them every single day without really thinking about them. You know, they're almost invisible to us, you know, um, whereas to, you know, an animal as small as a, you know, as small as a, uh, a wood frog or, you know, as big as a grizzly bear, you know, roads are kind of the primary human built, structures that affect their lives, you know, in, in really profound and kind of pernicious ways. So, you know, thinking about thinking about the ways in which our roads have, have changed ecosystems and, and the things that we can do to, you know, kind of heal those cuts um, is, is really what this, this book's about. I heard in the 90s uh, when we were doing a little bit of road ripping uh, in partnership with the Forest Service, uh, helping them take out roads mm, cool. with uh, augers, and we had a, a, a lizard guy with us, and I was, and we were taking the the these great big cores out of these volunteered <coughs> roads, maybe old logging roads, and. And he was going behind us and sticking sticks down in the holes that were about two feet deep and maybe a foot wide. And we asked him, what are you doing? Every time we turn around, there's sticks in our holes and we're trying to, he's like, well, I figured my lizards are going to get stuck in these holes. They're too deep and I need to, I'm making lizard ladders. He was a very inventive guy. I'm like, okay, because he wasn't helping with anything else. So he was like, what's he doing back there? So he was making lizard ladders for these little holes and and there was a lot of road ripping in the 90s. You just don't hear a lot about road ripping now. It's not, there used to be an organization. There used to be an awful lot of uh, awareness about, you know, in conjunction with roadless areas with Dave Foreman, always talking about roadless areas and protecting them and, and the Forest Service being one of the biggest controllers of roads in the country, if not the biggest. Um, what is all of that landscape like now in terms of taking out just roads that not even the Forest Service really wants around and would rather not have to maintain anymore? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I haven't heard of the, uh, the, the lizard ladder concept, but I, I, really, <laughs> I really like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for that now. Yeah, you know, I, th I think that the, the kind of the Forest Service road decommissioning landscape has, you know, has, it's changed a lot. I mean, there's still certainly doing a lot of that work, but, you know, I think it's become 
I think it's become political in a way that, uh, you know, maybe it, it wasn't always. I mean, obviously, you know, wilderness and roadlessness has always been political. Um, but, you know, now, you know, I think that there, there are a lot of powerful, you know, four-wheeler factions and, uh, you know, hunters groups and whatnot that, you know, obviously love the, the access that these these uh, historic logging roads provide. I mean, look, I, I use logging roads to, you know, get to trailheads and, you know, fishing lakes and all, all kinds of things. So, you know, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, a good forest road as, as much as the, as much as the next guy. So, you know, I think, I think that a lot of, I mean, it's funny, you know, it used to be the, the forest services, you know, historically this agency that, you know, that, that uh, managed timber, you know, and now, I mean, probably the biggest thing that it does is manage travel access, right? I mean, those, you know, those travel, the travel management plans that, you know, every forest, unit creates and kind of a, uh, uh, abides by, um, you know, I mean, those are, those are as are more contentious than any timber harvest plan, you know, and there are all of these uh, factions that, you know, that uh, get really up in arms whenever a road is, is gated or, or uh, obliterated. So, you know, I think a lot of road decommissioning projects have been kind of caught up in that, you know, and, and roads, I mean, it's, a, it's, Roads, uh, there's a, a, you know, a great uh, historian, a road historian named uh, Jedediah Rogers, you know, and he's written about roads as kind of these expressions of ideology. Um, you know, they're not just physical features. They're also these markers that kind of indicate, you know, what the land is for and who should get to use it for what purposes and, uh, you know, who gets to decide how the land is used. You know, is it the federal government or is it, you know, the county commission, um, you know, that, uh, that, you know, this operates adjacent to the national forest. So, you know, I think that, yeah, I think the roads have kind of become sort of these culture war objects in some ways. And I, I think in, in mm. many cases, you know, that's impeded uh, decommissioning. You can talk about a specific road and say, I love that road. I need that access, but people don't seem to be having that conversation. It's if you try to come after roads of any kind in any place, it's almost like the gun debate. It's just, no, yeah. no, just keep your hands off my roads. Ugh. So we yeah. haven't made much progress if that's the same thing that we, because we were doing that in the 90s and before that they were doing it in the 80s and 70s. What do you see in terms of projects that are good examples of people coming together, um, compromise being made, uh, work being done to, to tear out roads that, really just are so unnecessary and would have such a benefit to wildlife. There's got to be hot spots where it's probably pretty contentious, but we're winning battles maybe. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, you know, certainly um, there's a lot of, a lot of, re of road decommissioning happening uh, in, you know, in Northwest Montana right now. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Lolo National Forest, the uh, Helena National Forest, you know, I went to both those places and saw some, you know, some pretty, you know, pretty large scale road decommissioning happening. You know what I, I mean? I do think that one of the cool things about these projects, right, is that they, you know, they are, uh, you know, they're these little stimulus packages, right? You get a bunch of, you know, machinery operators up there, you know, running their, uh, you know, their, their backhoes and, uh, you know, and front loaders and, and whatnot, uh, you know, tearing, tearing roads up. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a little, uh, you know, economic stimulus project for the earth, you know, especially in, in these communities that, uh, you know, that, that the timber industry is kind of, has kind of abandoned, you know, so I think that's an interesting idea, right? You, know, you can sort of imagine, you know, a new, a new civilian conservation core, right? I mean, it was, it was the mm. CCC that, you know, built something like 125,000 road miles in national 
national forests. And, uh, you know, I mean, how many people could we hire to, uh, to tear some of those, those roads out, you know? Um, so, you know, I think that in, in, some of these, in some of these forests where, you know, road decommissioning has happened at a, at a pretty large scale, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that it, it tends to be, it tends to become somewhat popular over time because, you know, I mean, everybody has some kind of connection to it, you know, from the, you know, the forest service employees themselves to the, uh, you know, the machinery operators who get contracted to do some of this work. So, you know, how, I, I think it's exciting to think about how road obliteration can be an economic opportunity, you know, and, and uh, you know, kind of a little, uh, yeah, a little stimulus package. Everything that we have now is, is on the back of nature and we have this economy that says we have to grow and we have to perpetually grow, otherwise we die. And I've always fantasized that there's got to be some solution of going back the other direction, sort of like when a ripple from the middle of the pond hits the edge of the pond and starts coming back. And beavers are one of those ripples to me. And what you just mentioned about roads, same thing, taking them back out and that economic stimulus being there just seems like we could probably be a different sort of prosperous than, you know, how we got here, it going back in the other direction, and at least doing the 30% and the 50%. We don't want all the roads, we don't want all the land, but just going back to some level of what could be considered closer to balance. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful idea for sure. And I mean, I, th I think that, you know, one of the interesting, I mean, a lot of what I, write about or try to write about in this book is, you know, sort of the, the analogies or the parallels between, you know, how roads shape nature and, and you know, in wild communities and how they shape our own lives as humans, you know, and, and um, I mean, it's, you know, you read about, of course, the history of, of, uh, of urban freeways and, and uh, interstates, you know, in, in, um, in, in big cities, you know, and how, and how freeways were used as these, you know, slum clearance programs to, you know, basically just intentionally destroy, uh, you know, black and other minority communities. Um, and, you know, and, and, uh, and now there are all kinds of wonderful projects in, in urban areas to, you know, to destroy or, you know, kind of reconfigure uh, this, this historically deleterious infrastructure and, uh, you know, and kind of re remake our, our cities by, by removing highways from them. Um, and, you know, I think that's, I think that's exciting to think about too, is that, you know, we've got, it's, you know, it's almost happening at these two different scales in these two very different places, you know, we're both obliterating these little tiny dirt logging tracks, uh, you know, that are causing these huge, you know, sedimentation problems in national forests. And we're destroying, you know, in some cases, these, these giant, uh, four or six lane interstates that are, you know, kind of plowing through the, the heart of, uh, of, of major cities. So, you know, thinking about, yeah, the, the fact that roads are operating at such different scales and such different contexts, and yet, you know, they're, in both cases, they're these kind of these huge agents of fragmentation and, and community collapse, you know, whether human community or natural community collapse. Uh, and, you know, how can we Kind of pull that that knife out, um, and and uh, you know, as you said, kind of um, you know, move back to a pre a pre roaded state, um, and and uh, you know, get some benefits that way. So, yeah, you know, that's that's a, I, 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 I'm trying to be both you know forward thinking, but as you alluded to, kind of rear, rearward thinking as well. You know, how can we, um, you know, how can we kind of undo some of the damage we've done? There are great examples of places where we're removing roads, right? But that, I mean, that's, you know, we have 4 million miles of, of roads in, in, uh, in the United States. And, you know, I mean, are we going to remove, you know, what, 
I don't know, a, a few hundred or a few thousand miles uh, of them. You know, I think that like all of the all of the Forest Service roads that have ever been decommissioned add up to, I think, about 10,000 road miles. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, there, there's something like 370,000 miles still in the, in the system, right? So, you know, ultimately, we're kind of stuck with this infrastructure. You know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to destroy I-70 or 80 or 90, right? These interstates are, you know, they're, they're, they're with us. Um, and, you know, it's wonderful to think that we could change American car culture, but, you know, I don't, like, I don't know how realistic that is. I mean, how many people are we really going to pry out of their vehicles? You know, yeah, we could give them other, other transit options, um, and certainly we should, um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're never going to, you know, be, be rid of our highways or, or our cars, you know, and in fact, I mean, autonomous vehicles are just going to make kind of car culture, I think, probably more convenient and cheap and ultimately entrenched. But a lot of road ecology, I think, works within the system that we have, right? I mean, things like wildlife overpasses and underpasses uh, and, you know, roadside fencing that guides animals to those crossing points, you know, that's, I mean, that stuff is great and it, and it enhances the connectivity of the landscape without really challenging the existing automobility structures, you know, that, that yeah. kind of govern society. And that's, I mean, that's something that I've thought a lot about in this, in this book is like how, you know, how radical to be um, in, you know, in sort of what I, what I prescribe or call for in this, in this book, you know, it's, it's um, yeah. How, you know, do you, are you, are you pragmatic and say, you know, look, we're stuck with these interstates and, you know, let's, let's kind of retrofit them to make them as permeable to animals as possible and as safe as possible. Or do you say, you know, hey, what we really need is this, you know, kind of sweeping change, where, as you said, you know, we, we get rid of, let's say, 30% of, of American roads. I mean, that sounds, you know, in, incredible. Um, but I, I don't know that's ever going to happen. You know, you, you, you want to be pragmatic, but you also don't want to be you don't, you don't want the perpetuation of the car to be this self-fulfilling prophecy, obviously, where you say, you know, well, we're just, you know, we're stuck with personal cars um, and we're always going to be stuck with personal cars. So, you know, let's just, let's just work with the system we have and, you know, try to make it as least, as, as unterrible as possible. I think that when you know how much, and this, your new book's going to be very, very helpful in this to bring out the statistics, but let's take 370,000 miles of forest road. And you go into a, a, a discussion with someone and you're debating, I would just say, look, you have 370,000 miles of this stuff. We're never going to get rid of all of it. Not in any you know, reasonable amount of time. We'll all be long gone before any serious progress is made. And we're talking about 10 miles. We just got to get this 10 miles. Can right. you work with us? And if you frame it that way, maybe we could make some progress. And that also is though it works far too slow for uh, for us as impatient as we are now uh, and desperate as we are now uh, that's the beginning of culture change you know it, it, there's maybe cars still left in that culture but we've changed because we're starting to do overpasses we're starting to take out roads that are unnecessary uh giving back uh to species that really need that area unperturbed uh, and and still everybody has tons and tons of roads yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, I think that's true. I mean, I mean certainly, you know, I, th I think there have been culture changes in transportation agencies. And, you know, when I, when I talk to, you know, road ecologists who, you know, began this work in the, you know, in the, in the, in the 1990s, you know, they say, I mean, look, if, you know, if you had proposed a, you know, a multi-million dollar wildlife overpass, you know, in, in 1995, 
you know, most most state engineers would have laughed you out of the room, right? Uh, and you know, and and now these things are being built all over the place, and and uh, you know, they're kind of part and parcel with with you know a lot of projects. So you know, I do think that that the cultural change you're talking about is is it's happening at the agency level, you know, if not within the general public. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really excited about your past work. I'm even more excited about the work that we're all going to be treated to hopefully next year uh, when the new book with its new title comes out around road ecology. So, but man, just thanks for, so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Jack. And I really appreciate uh, all, all, all you guys do. It's I've really enjoyed uh, going back through the, the, uh, the podcast archives. You've had some uh, amazing guests and I'm honored to be part of it. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.